Well, please turn back with me in our Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 29, and we'll pick up our reading at verse 31 in chapter 29, and reading into chapter 30. Genesis chapter 29 at verse 31, and this is found on page 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name 
Zebulon. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, in our evenings together, we have been looking at the life of Jacob, and we have been doing that uh, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Jacob is important because he's one of the patriarchs of the faith. Uh, He is one through whom God's promises were initially given and uh, was used by God to uh, bring about a formation of a people. And we've read uh, some of the, the children of Jacob here this evening. Uh, those people would become formative uh, as the tribes of Israel. Uh, And so it's uh, through the line of Jacob that the people of God really take formation. And so it's important for us to understand the life of Jacob if we're going to trace the development of God's purposes in history. But we can also appreciate Jacob because Jacob is showing us how God works in people's lives. When we look at Abraham, for instance, we realize that the life of God, uh, a life of devotion to God, is a life of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Abraham, we see what it means to have faith, and you see that as you work through Abraham's life. When you come to Jacob, you're learning what it means to be saved by grace. Because Jacob does not strike us and shows himself not being someone who is worthy of God's blessings. That Jacob is a a schemer. Jacob is someone who deceived uh, his own father in order to steal away the blessing. Jacob was someone who was willing to invoke God's name in order to get what he wanted. Any of this would call into question the integrity of such a man being blessed by God and being the one who would carry God's promises forward. And yet, when we come to Jacob, we see that even before Jacob was born, before he had done anything either good or evil, God had purposed to bless Jacob. That it would be through Jacob that God's blessing would continue. And so it's helpful for us to understand how does God work in people's lives? What kind of people become believers? And Jacob is teaching us that very sinful people become believers. People that aren't worthy become recipients of God's favor and blessing. And for that, it is instrumental for us to study Jacob, that we might understand God's dealings with his creatures. Already, we've looked at how Jacob did deceive his father. You remember, he did successfully trick his father into thinking that he was Esau. And his father did bestow upon him the blessing. His plan worked. And yet when you look at Jacob's life, not everything in Jacob's life went according to plan. And when you stop and think about that, again, that sounds like our lives. That our life is not one in which everything goes just as we wanted it to. Our lives are not shaped by ultimately us being in control, but oftentimes things happen to us 
that can upset us, but also call into question, is it all for nothing now? Is everything a mess that can never be restored? Is everything just so bad now that it can never be redeemed? And what we see in Jacob is that even in the mess of his life, God is still at work. And that's a beautiful thing. Even in the the hardships and the trials that characterize Jacob's life, God is still at work. And we see that as we trace through another individual's life from a vantage point. We can see it. And that's why it's given to us in God's word. You remember that after he deceived his father, uh, after he received that blessing, he was sent away. He had to leave the land of Canaan. He had to leave his father and his mother. He had to travel over 600 uh, kilometers away. He's going to another region known as Padamaran. But he was going there with a purpose, not only to escape his brother's wrath, but also in order to marry. One of the promises that God gave to Jacob was is that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth. That God's promise to Abraham was now echoed to Jacob. But at this point, Jacob was still unmarried. He had no children. And so as we come to this this time in Jacob's life, we're beginning to see uh, this, this issue being addressed of how it is that Jacob would be married, but also how he would have children. And this is a, a section in Jacob's life. He would go to this region, Padamaram. He would be there for the next 20 years. And those 20 years would have a lasting influence on Jacob. They would continue to shape him and to mold him, both by what happens to him there, but also, but also in terms of what it sets him on a certain trajectory. And so this evening, we want to look at the marriages uh, that he's engaged with, with Leah and with Rachel. And we want to look at these chapters uh, very broadly, uh, but we want to think about the deception that is at play uh, by the deceiver himself. Jacob was someone who deceived his father. But this evening, as we're coming to this section, we want to see how the deceiver himself was deceived. But then we want to see that even through that, the Lord's purposes still prevail. The Lord's purposes are not defeated. And so we want to look uh, at uh, what happens when he moves to this region. Jacob then uh, uh, comes to this region in chapter 29. And it tells us that uh, when he went on his journey, he came to the land of the people of the east. Uh, And as he looked, he saw there was a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. Uh, For out uh, of that well, the flocks were watered. And when all the flocks were gathered, the shepherds would roll the stones away. When Jacob comes to that region, you remember he meets with the shepherds and he asks them if they know Laban. Uh, This is how we know that he's come to the right place, because they know of Laban, Laban as well. And then they point him uh, to one of his daughters that is coming. And so it seems like everything is falling into place uh, very quickly for Jacob. He's come to the land. He's found people who know Laban. And you remember that when he was coming to uh, this region, he was sent there by his father to seek out one of the daughters of Laban to marry that he was not just to marry, but he was told who to look for. He was to marry one of the daughters of Laban. And so now here he is at a well, he's meeting shepherds, and they're telling them that, yes, we know Laban. 
And yes, one of his daughters is coming right now because she is a shepherdess. But there is striking uh, resemblances here to something else that we read of in the book of Genesis. If we traced through the lives of each of the patriarchs, you remember there was a time when Abraham sent out one of his servants to find a wife for his son Isaac. And that servant came to the same region and he came looking for a wife uh, for Isaac. And there are noticeable similarities. Uh, The the encounters happen at a well. Uh, In both accounts, uh, the woman uh, who will ultimately marry just appears at that right time. But there's also notable differences. Because in the earlier account, when Abraham's servant comes seeking a wife for Isaac, he comes explicitly praying for God's guidance on his work. He's asking the Lord to show him and to bless his efforts of finding a spouse suited for Isaac. The second thing that is different is not only did he pray to the Lord about these things, but you notice that when, the, uh, when Abraham's servant meets Rebekah, it tells us that she was beautiful. But Abraham's servant wasn't satisfied with the physical beauty. It's not that he ignored it, but it's that it wasn't what he was focused on ultimately. What he was rather concerned of was the inward beauty of the one who would marry Isaac. And you remember how he uncovered that because he wanted one who would show kindness. And she would show that inward beauty by her willingness to water, to give water to both uh, his, himself but also to his, uh, his animals. There was, there was something he was trying to uncover about the character of the individual who would marry Isaac. Because marriage is more than just physical attraction. It's more than just the physical excitement of another. That marriage is really a bonding together of two, the two becoming one. And while physical beauty is part of it, there is an attraction that characterizes a, a healthy marriage. Abraham's servant recognized there must also be a unity in terms of aim. There must also be a coming together in terms of a common goal, which characterizes the individual. What shapes them in terms of what they aspire for, what they value in life, what is important to them. And more than that, Abraham's servant wanted the individual that he found to be one that the Lord himself had assigned. In other words, one that the Lord would bless this marriage with. And so Abraham's servant was marked by a a wisdom in how he went about his mission. He looked for inward beauty. He looked for the Lord's guidance in the way that he found uh, uh, someone to marry Isaac. That's really important, especially for any of us here who are thinking about marriage. Or any of us who would be open to the idea of marriage. What do you look for? When you contemplate someone who is marriable, someone that is uh, worthy of committing your lives to, it must go deeper than simply the physical attraction. It must be something that is a common aim in life, that there is this common 
valuation of what is important, but it is also one that is seeking to honor the Lord in coming together. Because the bond goes much deeper than just, than just the physical desire. And so there is a wisdom that we see in Abraham's servant. But you notice that as we come to this section, those details are absent. That it tells us nothing of Jacob explicitly praying for the Lord's guidance. And it doesn't show the same concentration on Jacob's part of these other factors uh, either. But it tells us uh, that he meets with Rachel there in verses 11 and 12. And when he sees Rachel, he is captivated by her. Uh, he, he, he kisses her, he weeps, he tells her that he is of uh, her father's kinsman, and then she rushes back to go and tell Laban. When Laban hears the news, he comes running. Because Laban knows Abraham's family. He remembers the time when Abraham's servant came, and he came uh, seeking a wife for Isaac. And it was his sister, Rebekah, that went. And he remembers that this man who came from Abraham came bearing gifts. And he gave gifts not just to Rebekah, but he gave gifts to Laban. And now Laban comes rushing out to find this man who's come from the land of Abraham. And he sees a man who has nothing more than the clothes on his back. He still takes him back with him. But this is not the same kind of encounter uh, that he may have been expecting when he ran out initially. It tells us, though, that after a month, he tells Jacob uh, to name his wages because he doesn't want him to serve him for nothing. As long as he is in the land, uh, he needs to make a living. He needs to be able to provide for himself. And so Laban says, tell me your wages. And Jacob uh, um, uh, presents an idea. He asks, uh, it tells us only now in the, the middle of this chapter, in verse 16, that Laban actually had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, uh, and the name of the younger was Rachel. It tells us that Leah's eyes were soft, or weak, or tender-eyed. And what that means exactly is debatable. Uh, it may simply mean that there was no sparkle in her eye. Uh, but in some sense, there was a difference uh, between Leah and Rachel. And Jacob's emotional commitment was attached with uh, with Rachel. And so he offers uh, to work for uh, Laban for seven years in order to have the hand of Rachel in marriage. If we're going to understand this, we have to understand it in its, its own cultural milieu. We have to understand it in its historic context. When bridal prices were the practice, when people did uh, uh, offer uh, a price in order to have the hand of marriage uh, from, of the daughter of another uh, man. And so here, Jacob is offering his service for seven years. Why? Because he doesn't have anything else to offer. He doesn't have any gold or silver. And so he's willing to work for seven years in order to, to satisfy the father of Rachel. Uh, to have her hand in marriage. There's something else, though, to realize about this. When you break it down in the ancient world, a laborer would be paid between half a shekel and a shekel for their wages over the course of a month. Uh, and so if you times this out, if you do the math, 
This is an extremely uh, generous offer that Jacob is offering. Later on, the law of God would have a maximum limit that could be offered as a bridal price of 50 shekels. Uh, And here, Jacob is offering something that comparatively is much more than what would be expected as a bridal price. So Jacob here shows his, his devotion to Rachel. He's willing to give of himself. And it tells us that he worked those seven years, and it seemed to him but a few days, because he loved Rachel so. Uh, that was his commitment uh, to Rachel. But uh, we're told that when the time came together, uh, that Laban held a feast, uh, but when it was dark, Laban deceived Jacob by presenting his eldest daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. And by morning, it becomes apparent that Jacob has been deceived. He's now married to the wrong sister in his eyes. He wanted to marry Rachel, but now he's married to Leah. And he is upset with uh, Laban. He says, why have you done this to me? Laban explains that it's not in their cultural practice to let the younger marry before the older. And then Laban comes up with a resolution. If you work for another seven years, you can have my other daughter as well. And so Laban here, you start to see how he's capitalizing on Jacob. He's, he's got him committed now for at least 14 years of hard labor in order to marry his two daughters. And Jacob is in this conundrum where he has married the one he didn't want to marry, but he wants to marry uh, uh, the one he isn't married to. And so he ultimately agrees to that resolution. Jacob, uh, uh, those years uh, will not fly by for Jacob. Instead, they will become long and difficult years. And ultimately, uh, Jacob is married to both of these sisters. Jacob was not only someone who deceived, but he was someone who himself was deceived. And whenever we have been deceived ourselves, it's not so much the deception that affects us, but it is what the deception is doing. When someone, if we've ever been deceived, we realize that we have been used as a pawn. We realize that someone is manipulating us in order to advance their own purposes. We've been used as an object. We are advancing their own aims and their own goals. And so as a result, we can feel very exposed. And if you've ever been deceived, then the reaction is to steal oneself, uh, to not allow that to happen again. And even more than that, we can begin to entertain the idea that this is the world you live in. We live in a world where people will deceive one another. And so if you're going to work in the real world, then you better get used to it. And you better play by the world's rules. That's the danger that we can slip into. Where Jacob himself was a deceiver, but now he's getting a taste of that medicine himself. Even when his uncle uh, deceives him uh, uh, by giving the wrong uh, daughter in marriage. Ian de Guid highlights that one of the lessons that Jacob's encounter with Laban offers us, it is the point that there are many Labans in the world who will deceive and manipulate others to their own ends so that we will begin to think that we have to live uh, by the world's rules. 
But here's the thing. Even if we prevail in trying to outwit the world by its own rules, of trying to deceive others and always come out on top, even like Jacob does, what we will find is that at the end, we'll have a lot of soured relationships and broken relationships with those who are close to us. Living in this world is not just about getting out on top. There's something more to life. Jacob is feeling the sting of being deceived. And in a world where people do manipulate one another, where people do deceive one another, we have to learn how do we respond to this. Do I begin to act like them? Do I start to say this is a dog-eat-dog world? Or do I live by a higher principle? Do I live by something higher than my own sense of getting ahead? There are lots of Labans in this world. But we have to have our own sense of what it is that shapes the way that we live our lives. And so we see here uh, Jake, uh, Jacob uh, finding himself in a very messy situation. He's married now uh, to two women. He's married now to two sisters. Now we might ask ourselves, does that mean that polygamy is fine if it's in the Bible? From the beginning, it teaches us that marriage is between one man and one woman. That marriage is uh, uh, ordained by God. But the Bible is also honest enough to tell us about the practices that emerged. Because it's trying to show us how the human heart works and what happens when it does happen. Yes, Jacob married multiple women. But look at the trajectory of what happens. Look at the fruit that comes from polygamy. It's not righteousness and peace and, and, and uh, prosperity and joy. It's division. It's hostility. It's estrangement. And so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that that is endorsed by the Bible. It's simply highlighting that this is what different sinners have succumbed to. There was a recent article uh, that was polling Americans, and it highlighted that now one in four Americans think that it is morally acceptable for people to be married to multiple people at the same time. Polygamy. One in four. That's a 500% change from 20 years ago. How do you explain how five times as many people in America believe in polygamy in just a short span of less than a generation. The reason is, is because we have come to think about marriage in terms of self-expression. People think about marriage not as it's ordained by God, but simply as a form of self-expression. And so if a person sees no higher end to marriage than however they want to live, then polygamy naturally flows into that definition. Marriage can be twisted in all kinds of ways. And so we have to begin by asking the question, where does our understanding of marriage begin? Where does marriage originate? Is it simply a human custom? Or is it something that is ordained by God? Is it something that God has established that is to be cherished and protected? in order for it to be a blessing. 
And that is what ultimately is going to safeguard marriage from becoming ultimately meaningless. Here, Jacob finds himself in a messy situation. And you just see the mess uh, spread uh, as a result. It tells us about how uh, 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 Leah is hated uh, by Jacob. That's a strong word. Uh, It means at the very least aversion to a more aggressive, vehement animosity. Jacob did not love Leah. And imagine being Leah in that relationship. The one thing she longs for is the one thing that is denied her, the emotional attachment. She wants to be loved, and she's not. Rachel, the one thing that she wants is status, children, and she doesn't have it. And so you see this division grow in this uh, arrangement where Rachel is saying things like, give me children or I die. I want the status. You see Leah longing for recognition and the love of her husband. When she has children, the Lord opens her womb. She has a child. Uh, Reuben, look, I have a, a child. Look, see, a son. Jacob, don't you love me? She has another child. Simeon, heard, God has heard that I've been hated. Don't you love me? She has another child. Levi, attached. Maybe now Jacob will attach She has a fourth child, Judah, praise. Now she is able to direct her praise to God. But in all of this, you see the longing of someone who wants to be loved, who is not loved. This division and competition just escalates uh, between these two. The two sisters then get their servants involved in order to have children and more children, in order to secure the love or the status that each of them want. The intensity builds with the names that they are giving to their children. The competitive nature, with mighty wrestlings I have overcome. Uh, This is the language of competition. And so we see these two women uh, fighting it out, as it, as it were. But this uh, division is all because of the fruit of the deception that took place and how Jacob went along with Laban's recommendation and resolution. But ultimately, what are we to make of this event? In many ways, Jacob's life is only getting messier. Jacob has been separated from his mother. His brother wants him dead. He's now estranged from his own homeland. But more than that, now he's married and he has two wives that are bickering with one another. These are not lovely years for Jacob. Instead, they are years where there is constant friction between them. And so as we read this, what are we to make sense uh, of what is happening here? We are to think, what is God doing in all of this? But it tells us what God is doing. Because it told us back there uh, uh, earlier that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. God was advancing his purposes even in this messy situation. The Lord knows what his people are going through. And one of the comforts of This Christian life is knowing that even when we are despised and scorned, the Lord knows the shames and the burdens that his people carry, and he is pleased to overcome those. 
The trials and the burdens that they face are not in vain. The Lord knows what they are going through, and our calling is to honor him as we face those trials. Leah is in a marriage where she's not loved. She is in a situation in where she is shamed. And yet it tells us the Lord overcomes that by causing her to give birth and to have children. The Lord can even work in messy situations. It's not as though God steps back and says that is too messy. God is able to work in the mess of human life to bring it out for good. And as we read this section, we should ultimately come to see God's promises are being fulfilled. Jacob's children will become like the dust of the earth. By the end of Genesis, there will be 70 that belong to the line of Jacob. That line will continue to grow throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It'll ultimately bring forth the promised offspring, the Lord Jesus, the one who came to bring salvation and to be a blessing to the nations. But when Jesus died and rose again from the dead, Jesus then sent out his followers into all the earth. They were scattered, but they were scattered in order to fulfill God's purposes. And so even today, we're seeing that promise. The purpose of God is continuing, even through all the hardships that Christ's people carry. So a follower of Jesus might be scorned and shamed in this world, but, but they're not shamed by God. Leah bore the shame of not being loved, of being looked on as the, the accident. And yet she's the one whom the Lord honors because it's from Leah that the priestly line comes. It's from Leah that the kingly line comes. Moses and David, but ultimately the Lord Jesus, who is the savior of sinners. God's purposes are working through those who are in messy situations. And so what is the answer to living in a world where people deceive and manipulate and twist one another? What what keeps us from simply living a life that says this is the real world and so you have to learn to live by the world's rules? It's ultimately stepping back and being able to say there's something higher to which to appeal to. To recognize that there is a plan of God that won't be ruined. My plans might come to nothing. Your plans might come to nothing. Your life might feel like a mess. But God's plan never is defeated. And so when we recognize that God's plans can't be deceived, then we can trust him in all of the mess. You remember that the religious leaders were deceptive with Jesus, twisting his words in order to get rid of him. But God actually used the deception of those religious leaders in order to fulfill his purpose. Here, God is using the deception of Laban ultimately to crown Leah as the mother of the tribes of Israel. The Lord is bestowing upon her an honor that she otherwise wouldn't have had. And God is working through that. 
And so as we live our lives in a messy situation, as we live in our, our lives where people deceive one another, we have to step back and to say, God's purposes will prevail. God won't be deceived. And so I can trust in him and be faithful in the situations that I find myself in. Can you do that yourself? Or have you succumbed to a, a dog-eat-dog world mindset where I'm going to get ahead because what matters most in this life is me? Or can you live on the principle that God will take care of all things and that you can trust in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless us as we think about the life of Jacob. We thank you that you are a God who is involved in human history, that you are not a God who stands aloof, that you are a God who is able to work even through the mess of this life. And we thank you that we can say this with confidence as we think about the Son of God taking on human flesh and living amongst sinners, ultimately in order to restore all of creation. Lord, we confess that uh, we oftentimes feel the need to assert ourselves, to try to uh, make things work by our own cunning. But we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us humility, recognizing that we are to live before you, recognizing that we are to live before the presence of our God, but also trusting that you are able to redeem all things as well. Go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen.